If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, <coughs> that's page 944 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Again, that's John 4, that's page 944 of your pew Bibles. When was the last time, when was the last time you were really excited about something? Okay, so excited about something, in fact, you couldn't contain it. Okay, this is probably how you know you were excited about it. You talked about it. You introduced others to it. You posted about it. Maybe you sold it. You found yourself involved in some kind of pyramid scheme. My guess is, regardless of what that thing is or was, it was probably something new. A new relationship, a new car, a new home, a new gym, a new diet, a new grill, new makeup, a new app, a new artist. It was something new to you and it captivated you, at least for a season, such that you were compelled to share it with others. But slowly, over time, your evangelism waned. The allure faded. It's not that the new thing became a bad thing, but you found that it couldn't sustain you. It wasn't ultimately a satisfying thing. Have you ever noticed that some of the best gospel evangelists are new converts? They've recently moved from death to life. They've just come to see the light. The spiritual spring is newly welling within them. They come to Christ and like Andrew, they immediately go out and find a brother or a friend. Maybe this was your experience as well, but over time your evangelism waned. Why? In today's text, we see a bit of a contrast between the Samaritan woman and the disciples. She, newly converted to Christ, becomes an evangelist for her entire town. The disciples who've been with Jesus for some time called by him, they've heard him teach, they've seen his signs, they are more sidetracked by the concerns of the world. We see a zealous convert and dull disciples. Why? Why does our evangelism often wane? There are no doubt many reasons why we don't share the gospel. Fear of man, lack of time, inexperience, bad theology, perhaps we don't have many relationships with non-Christians. But I think perhaps more than anything else, the reason why we don't share Jesus is because over time we've become less satisfied in him. Now to become clear, this doesn't mean that Christ becomes less glorious or majestic, but we become more distracted as we find other things at least temporarily more compelling than Christ. And so our senses to spiritual matters become dull. We don't live as sent people. We don't speak up then about Christ. Brothers and sisters, what does your evangelism say about your relationship with Jesus? John chapter 4, if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 4, beginning in verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? 
Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Amen. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Again, what does our evangelism say about our relationship with Christ? I want us to see three marks today of a good evangelist. Three marks of a good evangelist. A good or a faithful evangelist is satisfied, is sent, and they speak. A good evangelist is satisfied in Christ. They are sent and they understand themselves to be sent and they speak. They speak the good news of the gospel. Satisfied, sent, and speak. First, a good evangelist before anything else is satisfied in Christ. The one who was once thirsty has become a well of life. We begin in verse 27. Just then, his disciples arrived. Now, clearly we're jumping into the middle of um, an episode. What's going on in the book of John? You'll recall that Jesus went to Jerusalem. He cleansed or cursed the temple really there. He then moves out of the Judean countryside. He's making more disciples and baptizing more than John. He's drawn quite a bit of attention to himself. And so he's leaving for Galilee. Now, their version of I-40, it runs right through Samaria. John 4.4 says he had to go through Samaria. Geographically, it's convenient. Missionally, it's necessary. Jesus is showing us the gospel as it's moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The word became flesh and he has dwelt among us. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world by being in the world amongst its people. And so Jesus goes through Samaria. It's basically crossing into enemy lines. Sometimes often, as we said, a pious Jew might go around. And we find Jesus at the highest point of the heat of the day. Jesus is exhausted from his travels. He takes a seat. It's then that the Samaritan woman walks up. Now, she's drawing water alone, which is unusual. She's doing it at the worst part of the day, the hottest part of the day. Why? Well, as we saw, she's most likely a serial adulterer. She's been married five times, 
five broken marriages. She's with another man now who's not her husband. You see, no one can stand to draw water with her. She can't stand to draw water with others at this well because of the looks and the comments. And so she goes during the most inconvenient part of the day because she wants to be alone. And in her loneliness, she comes across Jesus. He dignifies her, of course, with a request. He then astonishes her with an offer of living water. Now, the disciples have missed this entire conversation. They simply walk up and see, verse 27, they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Now, what Jesus is doing is unconventional. You see, Jewish men didn't have private conversations with women who were not in their family. Rabbis often didn't even teach their wives the Torah because they thought it was a waste of time. This conversation wasn't just unconventional. Because it was this woman, it was scandalous. Okay, she doesn't need to wear a scarlet letter. Everywhere she goes in her town, they know she's the moral outcast. The disciples would have recognized this from a mile away. They're probably thinking he shouldn't be talking to her. At best, he's wasting his time. At worst, she's going to make him unclean. Now, little do they know, he just revealed himself as the great I am, the Christ, the bridegroom from heaven, come to make his bride, women like her, clean. The disciples come up. They're surprised. Verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Think about this. She couldn't even stand to draw water at the well with a few other women. Now she's drawing the intention of the entire town to take them back to that well. What has happened to her? John provides us with just a wonderful textual note. Verse 28. She left her jar. As we've seen, John is a master at taking the mundane and loading it with meaning. She left her jar. Why? She's no longer thirsty. You recall Jesus is the one that asks her for a drink in verse 7. She's shocked by his request. He says that if you actually knew who was talking to you and the gift that he had, you would ask him for living water. Then Jesus draws this contrast between her water and his. You can look back at verse 13. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, Jesus isn't merely contrasting this physical water with his spiritual water. Rather, I think Jesus is drawing from biblical imagery. Jeremiah chapter 2, we heard this last time. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Now her problem, like all of humanity's, is twofold. We have turned from God the fountain of living water. He possesses the fullness of life within himself. We have turned from him to things that we have made, things that cannot satisfy. This is called sin. 
In the case of the woman, rather than looking to God, she has looked to man after man after man for worth and satisfaction. Time and again, she has given her body, her mind, her heart, thinking they would make her happy and whole, thinking they would satisfy and comfort her. Time and again, she's left more shameful, more empty, more guilty before God. She's not even married now, probably because she's given up. And yet here at the well, she comes face to face with the bridegroom of heaven. The word become flesh. The one who traveled through Samaria to find her. He doesn't discard her. He doesn't shame her. He looks her in the eye and tells her, you can be satisfied. You can be made right with God. But how? You Jews say the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The water your soul longs for, the Christ the scripture foretold, the groom your soul desires, I am he. Drink from me and you'll never be thirsty again. She drops her jar and she runs into town. Why? She's not thirsty anymore. She's so satisfied, in fact, she's not only willing to be around those who previously shamed her, she's willing to rehearse what once brought her shame. Look at her testimony, verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Think about her message. Come see a man. Now, at the risk of sounding crass, there's nothing unusual about this woman finding a man. But he's no ordinary man. He told me everything I ever did. Now, Jesus, at least twice at this point in the book of John, has done something similar. Jesus looked into Simon and tells him, as unstable as he is, he will become Peter the rock, the rock on which the church is built. Jesus looks into Nathanael and says he's found an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now both of those sound pretty good. What does Jesus tell her when he tells her everything she's ever done? Her sexual deviance, five broken marriages in sin now. Why would that lead her to conclude not only that he's the Jewish Messiah, but that it's good news for the Samaritans? He knows everything, and he still loves me. He told me everything I ever did, and he's still going to make me a worshiper of the Father. He knows it all and says I can still have rest. If he can do it for me, he can do it for all of us. They wouldn't even drink, draw water with her. Now they're going to be drawing water out from her. I love the way one commentator put it, she went for water and became a well. You see, the best evangelists are not just saved, they are satisfied. Christ through his spirit is welling up within them and is overflowing. Christians, you are not just alive, you are gushing with life. As the spirit, the Lord and giver of life has taken up residence inside of you. Like the disciples who dropped her nets, she drops her jar and she runs eyes open into the fields. Brothers and sisters, what does your evangelism say about your relationship with Jesus? How satisfied are you in him? 
How awed are you by his love and his friendship? How overwhelmed are you by his mercy and grace? Is he the well that you're drinking from? And if not, why? If your evangelism has been lacking, tools and training can be helpful. I don't mean to diminish those. But if you're not sharing the gospel at all, first look to Jesus. Abide in him daily. Dwell on his promises. Reflect on his goodness. Rehearse his gospel. Drink deeply from his spirit. Rejoice in our union with him. Look to his glory until it radiates from your face. And then do what she does. It's so simple. She echoes what we've seen all along. She says, come and see. You won't be disappointed. The more we behold Christ, the more we should be holding him out to the world. You see, good evangelists, they are satisfied in Christ. They have become wells of water themselves. And good evangelists are sent. They understand that they have been called by the king, sent by the son. The Messiah has given them a mission Brothers and sisters, our time here is not simply about making it to the finish line, but also about bringing others with us. We are a sent people. Verse 31, in the meantime, that is while the woman's on her way to the town, drawing everyone back to the well that is Christ. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Now, notice the parallels between Jesus' conversation with the woman and then now his conversation with the disciples. Jesus tells them, I have food to eat you don't know about. He told her, if you only knew who I was, you would ask me for the gift that I have, this water. The disciples say, could someone have brought him something to eat? She said, you don't even have a bucket? Okay, like the groom at the wedding, the leaders at the temple, Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well, the disciples too misunderstand the plane that Jesus is talking about. His water is the spirit. His food is the will and the work of God. But the disciples, they don't know what Jesus is talking about because they don't see what he's talking about. And this is the point. They are eager. They keep telling him to eat something. They are eager eager to move past the awkward interaction with the woman. But Jesus is here for the woman. I have food you do not know about. Food you are oblivious to because you're concerned only with the physical plane. Now, what food is Jesus talking about? He tells us in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, first with the woman, now with the disciples, Jesus has taken two of the most basic human needs, water and food. Jesus has taken them to highlight man's greatest need and nourishment. I think we ought to see that Jesus is elevating, yes, elevating our spiritual needs above our physical ones. Now, that's not to, again, it's not to diminish our physical needs. I doubt many of us are at risk of so elevating the spiritual to the neglect of the physical Jesus is highlighting a more basic need, a more important, a longer-lasting, a more nourishing solution. We know from Deuteronomy 8.3, from Matthew 4.4, that man cannot 
live on bread alone. Think about that. You could eat three meals a day for your entire life. You could eat the best food your entire life and not actually be alive. Rather, man is made to live on the word of God. It is the word, the will, and the work of God that is Christ's food. As a young church, as a young church in Midtown, my guess is we have a lot of foodies, okay? A lot of us probably think we eat well, even if we have different definitions of eating well. Really healthy, really unhealthy, a lot of variety, a lot of similarity. At the table, we experience flavor, fellowship. We are nourished. Eating not only keeps us alive, but it gives us life. Some of my best memories, and I trust this is true for a lot of us, some of my best memories in life are over meals. The meal Jess and I shared on the night of our wedding, we had sea bass. A meal that I had with my family in Colombia on the side of a mountain. It was a coffee farm, it was beautiful. A meal that I had with my family in Serbia after teaching at a Bible college. A meal with some pastors in a village in India. Okay, some of the highlights of my life are over meals. But even the meals I don't remember have been necessary to keep me alive, to keep me going. Okay, basically three meals a day for over 30 years is a lot of meals. Jesus is telling us his highlights and what keeps him going, what nourishes his soul, what gets him up in the morning and through the day is to do the will and the work of God. Brothers and sisters, is that surprising to you I think if we were honest we would say we're inclined to think and even been taught that really we need a break from God's will we need me time that God's work is exhausting now I don't mean to diminish the fact that as creatures we need rest we do but here that Jesus is saying his food what nourishes his soul is to do the will and the work of God It's what gets him up and keeps him going. Now, what is the will and the work of God? Jesus tells us, John 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. More specifically, what's that work? Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Son was sent to save sinners. This is why even when he's exhausted from his travels, when he sees the woman, he goes to work. I'm tired, yes, but she's desperate. I'm exhausted, yes, but she's dead on the inside. I'm physically thirsty, yes, but her soul is dry. Christ snaps into action, and I promise you, it brings him great delight. Jesus is about to tell us that the sower and the reaper work together for joy. I think if many of us were honest, we would say that doing the will and the work of God is less like food for the soul and more like a chore. We have four young kids, as you all know. Six-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, one-year-old. Okay, Four kids, no friends. (laughs) Just kidding. We give them three meals a day. By we, I mean Jess. At least once a day, typically dinner, one kid will complain about the food before they've even eaten it. Okay, right now in this season, this is Pavy, sweet Pavy. 
Wednesday for dinner, we have what's called the agua chile. It's kind of like ceviche, uh, shrimp, it cures in lime. You then take the lime juice, you blend it up with serrano, you put onion, cilantro, salt. It's amazing. Eat it on tostadas. It's so good. Everyone loves it. Kids love it. Pavy, she just cried the whole time. Wouldn't even try it. Thursday, lasagna, Texas toast. Pavy cries the whole time. Won't even try it. Last night, burgers and fries. I don't even know why. Pavy was crying the whole time. She eventually ate it that time. And we don't give alternatives. We don't. It is eat this or you will go to bed hungry. Apparently, in Pavy's mind, hunger is better than the food we give her. Now, our children really have two problems. One, they don't trust us. Sure, every other meal we've given them their entire life has been good, but this one, it's going to be garbage. <laughs> Pavy's thinking, her will be done, her dinner come. The other problem, I think this probably applies to toddlers, again, across the board, is that really they've wrecked their taste buds on junk food. Okay, if we had flaming hot Cheetos and brownies for dinner, she would be crying tears of joy. You see, their problem is they would rather have a cheap counterfeit. Something that doesn't even come close to nourishing. Brothers and sisters, how often we live like foolish toddlers before the will and the work of God. Rather than inviting a non-Christian into our home, we'd rather veg out on the couch. Rather than leading an investigative Bible study at work, we'd rather go work out. Rather than engaging a homeless person, we'd opt for convenience. Are we really better off for it? And every time we opt for junk, we reinforce the problem, giving our soul what it actually doesn't need, but our flesh what it wants. My guess is if we were honest and we considered the moments that we do share the gospel, that we do give up an evening, that we do take a risk in conversation, that we find time and again that we experience the presence of God and his pleasure upon us, knowing that we're being used as tools in his hands for redemption. No doubt many of our members are good models of this here. But our problem is we often miss the work because we're consumed elsewhere. You see, the disciples are completely oblivious to what is happening on the spiritual plane. They hear food, they think bread. They see this woman, they think waste of time. We're tired, it's time to eat, let's go home. Jesus is saying, no, this is why I'm here. You are sent for the same mission. Verse 35, Jesus goes on. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. So Jesus, moving from the food metaphor to something similar to farming, is picking up a well-known axiom. There is a gap between sowing and reaping. Okay, we're not a farming community. I think we can grasp it. I think enough of us are, uh, have gardens these days at NBC, it seems. We were not content with the plants inside the house. We've, we've now moved outside. We are, we don't have a garden. It would be too strong of a word to use. But we grow chili peppers, jalapenos, serranos, and then uh, herbs. Kind of the bare necessities, our house. Now, we, we uh, sowed them months ago. We're just at the point now where we're getting to reap. 
it's taken months. Again, Jesus is working with well-known axiom. Basically, best case scenario, you sow seed, four months later, you're reaping the crops. The disciples are thinking, gap. If we sow now, we reap much later. When they look at Samaria, they see dirt. They don't see crops, and they certainly don't see yield. Jesus is saying the issue is not with the soil or the plant, the souls or the people. The issue is with you. Open your eyes to the fields. I think what Jesus would have us hear from the text this morning is that people are often more ready to hear the gospel than we realize because God has already been at work in their lives. I was in Albuquerque just a few weeks ago. We were downtown at night. If you ever find yourself in Albuquerque, I would not encourage that. It was very sketch. We met a guy who's inebriated, talked with him for a while. Turns out he's a police officer. He was lamenting how unsafe Albuquerque had become. Where we were at, just down the street, on the same street, his best friend was murdered about a month before. And so we're having this conversation with him about Albuquerque, about how things are. He finds out that we're pastors. He immediately stops cussing. He actually cusses. He's like, oh, shoot. And then says, oh, I'm sorry. And then he stops cussing. We continue the conversation. We're getting to know him. At the very end, one of the brothers I was with, the pastor, Ed, in New York, he says to Miguel, the guy's name, he said, I noticed when we told you that we were pastors, you stopped cussing. And then Miguel uh, immediately wanted to apologize again. Ed said, no, no, no. He said, what I want you to know is you have a conscience, and that's a good thing. It's a gift from God. You notice there's a difference between right and wrong. And then Ed began to share the gospel with him. You know, as a police officer, too, he understands it. He's concerned with justice issues there in Albuquerque. So he's sharing the gospel with him that God is a judge. He's going to right all wrongs. He will judge us based on all the things that we have done. And he tells Miguel, but God is kind. He's so kind. He sent his son to come to earth. He lived on our behalf. He died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. We share the gospel with him. Miguel, now he doesn't come to Christ, but he's visibly moved. He's crying. He's shaking our hands. He's thanking us for sharing the gospel with him. He says that he has a Bible at home that he's going to read, that he plans even to visit a church that we told him about. The point being, people don't live in vacuums. I can't tell you the rest of Miguel's story, but I'm confident that God has been working in his life, okay? There wasn't, it wasn't dirt. There seems like something is happening in Miguel. The Samaritan woman was ripe for the gospel because she had spent her miserable existence looking for life outside of God. And as a Samaritan, she had an understanding, some kind of understanding of God, of sin, and of a coming Messiah. Some kind of sowing had already happened such that when Jesus sows one more seed, it was time for harvest. No gap, the wind had blown. Again, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying every time you share the gospel, it's going to be positive, or that someone will come to Christ. That wasn't the case with Miguel. But again, what I'm wanting us to see from the text, I think what Jesus would have us hear is that people are often more ready to hear the gospel than we realize. We just don't realize because our eyes are closed. We think waste of time or too far gone or dead end. And more fundamentally, our problem is we assume that God is not at work. We think if something's going to happen, it's all up to me. 
So when we look at our workplace, our apartment complex, our family, we think barren wasteland. God is absent. The weight of that, of course, is crushing and paralyzing. What Jesus would have us see is that God has been at work long before us. He'll be at work long after us. The question is whether or not we will open our eyes and join him in the fields. Jesus goes on, verse 36. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Jesus picks up an idiom that they would have known. One sows, another reaps, which is typically a bad thing, okay? That's like putting all your money in a slot machine, walking away, seeing someone else hit a jackpot, okay? One one sows, another reaps. But Jesus is putting it positively. The sower and the reaper actually rejoice together because what's being gathered is the fruit of eternal life. And what's important for us to see is that God is the Lord of the harvest. He's the one that's employing. He's the one that's employing the workers, both the sowers and the reapers. He's the one that's bringing forth the fruit, which is eternal life. People, in most cases, have labored before us. They will labor after us. God is employing all of them toward the same end, which is the fruit of eternal life. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He writes there, beginning in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role that the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Brothers and sisters, God calls us Christians to work together at different stages to bring about the fruit of eternal life. The planter and the waterer are one, Paul says. The sower and the reaper rejoice together, Christ says. Either way, God is giving the growth. Either way, the fruit is eternal life. Either way, God gets the glory. Brothers and sisters, what would happen if we opened our eyes to those around us? If you opened your eyes at work, among your family, in your neighborhood, at the gym, to the fact that God has been at work and is at work right now. How do I know that God is at work right now in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Because there are laborers there. You're there. Okay, how do you know an MLGW is working in your neighborhood? You see a worker. How do I know God is working in your neighborhood? He's put workers there. The problem, of course, is that our eyes tend to be closed. Think again at John 4, 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Brothers and sisters, where is it that you have to go through? What would it look like for you to open your eyes? When I was in college, I resolved to not leave my room in the mornings. I lived in my fraternity house. I resolved to not leave my room in the mornings before I prayed John 4, verses 34 and 35. Every single morning, God give me the eyes to see the fields of this fraternity are white for harvest. By God's grace, shared the gospel a lot, experienced a lot of fruit in college. At some point after college, I stopped praying that. 
I'll confess to you all, I shared the gospel a lot more then than I do now. Jesus is calling all of us to open our eyes. The Father wants such people to worship him. The Son purchased them by his blood. The Spirit is now calling them through the preaching of the word. Can you think of a more fulfilling and invigorating task? Something more worthwhile and satisfying than working for God and with him even as a co-laborer. We see that a good evangelist is satisfied in Christ. A good evangelist is sent. They understand themselves to be sent. Their eyes are open. And at the risk of stating what is quite obvious or ought to be, a good evangelist speaks. They open their mouths to proclaim the mysteries of Christ. We saw that in verse 28. The woman left her jar. She went into town and told the people. Verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. Imagine if she had gone back to her town quietly. Would have been the end of John chapter 4. The well would have been closed. This woman really is a model for us. Notice the few things that she does. She speaks two things. One takes priority over the other. The first thing, she testified, he told me everything I ever did. She relays the words of Christ. Her message centers on Jesus and his message. He offers living water. He is transforming worship. He is the Christ. The gospel is good news, and it is news given to us by God himself in his word. It is in his word that we read and hear of his promises to save his people. It is in his word that we hear and read about those saving acts. It's in his word that we read and hear about his own interpretation of those saving works. And it is his word that the Holy Spirit uses to move people from death to light. She goes and she testifies, he told me. This is the priority. She proclaims the words of Christ. She doesn't stop there, though. She shares her testimony. She says, he told me what? Everything I ever did. Like he opened up my heart and my past. Rather than shaming me for my sin, he's made a way for me to be clean. He's sharing all that he has with me. God is becoming father. His righteousness mine, his spirit mine. Let me tell you about it. She speaks the words of Christ. She speaks to her experience with Christ. And then she invites them to come and see. Let me take you to him so that you can experience him yourself. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, that is to the well, the place that was once a place of shame for her has become the salvation for all. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Now this is not a diss on the woman. Many believed because of her message. More now have come to believe because she took them to Christ. Their faith is grounded, not just in her, but in the words of Christ and their experience with him. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus sends us into the world to speak. We should follow the example of the woman first relaying the words of Christ in the gospel, telling sinners that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We then can add to it our testimony. Let me tell you about how I have experienced the power of Jesus in my own life. Let me tell you about my relationship with him, how I have moved and experienced the movement from death to life. And then we ought to do as she does. If you want to learn more, let me take you to him. We see Christ clearly in his word and amongst his people. Come to church with me. How about you come over this week for dessert or drinks and we read the book of John together. I think as one maybe piece of application I would encourage you to think about, is there one person in your life over the coming weeks that you can do one of these three things with? Share the gospel with them, your testimony with them, or invite them to come in to see Jesus in the gathering or over Bible study. We see good evangelists are satisfied in the Son. They understand that they have been sent by the Son. They understand that they do their work in part by speaking. Brothers and sisters, with compassion and kindness, we ought to warn the world of their sin and point them to the only one who can save Jesus Christ the compassionate one. Notice that Jesus' first mass conversion happens with the Samaritans. Not in Jerusalem, not in the Judean countryside, not in Galilee during his first sign, not through Nicodemus. It happens in Samaria through the testimony of an outcast. And she brings everybody in. If the Lord saw fit to use her, why not us? Why not you? The Son satisfies us, He sends us, and He gives us the word to speak in His gospel. May we do just that. Let's pray.